The other thing that you'll see in many of the books that are out today is the way that rest is defined. And when I get a chance to address people, I usually just ask the question, what do you think is the opposite of rest? And depending on how you answer that question, it's going to really dictate how it is that you are approaching the topic. Because we've been taught to think that the opposite of rest is work. And I'm not sure that's entirely correct. This is Greg Hall, and you've made it to another episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Thanks for coming back. We are taking some time to go through the concept of biblical rest, and we're going to take a little bit of time to do this. It's going to be probably more on the scale of months instead of weeks. And we've already dipped our toe into it just a little bit. We've had an interview with Curtis Zachary that played a few weeks ago. I had my launch day special when my book came out, the very day my book came out. And then we went back to an origin story for me. How did I get going on this process that has ended up writing a book about rest? And we interviewed Morris Dirks, my youth pastor, who is the founding director of Soul Formation, an organization that ministers to church leaders and helps them understand the importance of care for your soul. Well, to get back to our roots, I'm going to be just spending this episode talking to you a little bit like I used to do. (laughs) And we're going to be diving into some different concepts about rest. And we're going to start walking down that road very slowly. And for those of you that have been able to purchase a copy of my book and maybe not received it yet, there were some supply chain issues here at the beginning. And I love saying that because it makes me seem like a big corporation or something. Just at its basis, the printer had a hard time getting copies made and out to the online distributors. Hopefully those supply chain issues will figure themselves out. The book will be more readily available and you'll get it a little bit faster than here right at the beginning. Thanks for your patience on that. So one of the benefits I found about not just writing a book, but actually getting it to the published stage and having a book in hand that I can talk about is that it's given me a better opportunity to actually go speak to groups about this. I've been on other people's podcasts recently, and I'll put a list of those in the show notes for this episode. I've been invited onto business meetings over Zoom with 30 to 40 people. I've had the chance to go speak into Sunday school classes, and I was invited and spoke at a men's breakfast at a restaurant. And I had the biscuits and gravy, and I didn't even have to pay for it. So that was a bonus. (laughs) Usually when I get together with groups, the way I'll start the conversation is with a question. And the question is, when I say biblical rest, what comes to mind? And I'd like you, as you're just listening to this, kind of play along with me. What comes to mind when you hear me say those words, biblical rest? Well, I get a lot of different responses. Usually, if it's a group that hasn't heard me talk about the topic or isn't familiar with my work, usually when I say biblical rest, some of the answers at least will come back with some sort of version of the seventh-day Sabbath, that concept of taking one day a week off from our normal work routines. It's a concept that's brought forth out of the Ten Commandments, Those are listed twice, by the way, once in Exodus chapter 20 
and again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So I've asked the question to the group. Maybe your response was something very similar to that. Maybe you thought, oh yeah, the seventh-day Sabbath, that's what biblical rest is all about. And you wouldn't be too far off because there are a ton of books (laughs) that have been written on the topic of Sabbath observance. And they're not just old books. They're not just from previous generations in the Christian faith. There are books coming out on a regular basis about what Sabbath keeping is, what it should look like, how important it is for believers to practice one day a week rest from your normal activities. And along those lines, I'm going to be diving into parts of a book written back in 2018 called Subversive Sabbath, The Surprising Power of Rest in a Nonstop World. This is written by A.J. Swoboda. He was originally, I think, up in the Portland, Oregon area. I think he's maybe moved since then because of a job change. But we're going to be diving into some of the things that he has to say about this Sabbath concept in his book. And I'd like to start just by reading a little bit out of the foreword. The foreword for his book, AJ's book, was written by Matthew Sleeth, who's an MD. And Matthew actually wrote another book on Sabbath rest called 24-6, which I think that's a very clever title, 24-6 instead of 24-7. But Dr. Sleeth wrote the foreword for AJ's book, and uh, I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs from it. He says this, The heart of A.J. Swoboda's book is that you can, starting next Sabbath, for 24 hours, you can lay your head on the chest of someone who loves you enough to die for you. Subversive Sabbath is an invitation to rest in the Lord. He goes on to say, The Sabbath commandment begins with an odd word. It tells us to remember. Don't forget how good it is to rest in the Lord to be loved by the Lord, to hear his heartbeat. A.J. Swoboda's narrative is both a reminder to those who have forgotten and an instruction for those who have never known the peace of Sabbath rest. Sleeth finishes the forward this way. You must finish the book, (laughs) put it down, and actually do the Sabbath. And then he defines it. You must get your life quiet enough one day out of the week to hear God's heart. Only then will you experience the countercultural joy of Shabbat Shalom, Sabbath peace. And it's Swoboda's work, as the forward here has suggested, that is all about one day a week, that seventh day Sabbath concept. And part of the problem is when I'm in groups and I ask about biblical rest, what I'm asking is a larger question. I'm asking about the whole theology of rest that the Bible presents. And when people answer me about the Seventh-day Sabbath, the Fourth Commandment, like A.J.'s book, and to be honest, most of the books on the market today, they go straight to this concept of one day a week. That's how we've been trained to think about the topic of biblical rest. We've been trained that the crown jewel of biblical rest is the Seventh-day Sabbath, the Fourth Commandment. And I think we come by it honestly. I, I don't think that anybody out there is intentionally ignoring everything else that the Bible has to say about rest. I think we've just gotten so hyper-focused on one little aspect that we think that's all there is. Or even if we know there's other stuff, 
we have assumed that all of the other things are pointing towards this idea that one day a week we should take time off of work. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that the Sabbath, (laughs) it isn't working. And I'm not trying to define the idea of Sabbath or what rest is by saying not working. I'm just saying the idea of the seventh-day Sabbath has been broken for a long time. Even when we thought we were doing it well within evangelicalism, we've been largely ignoring the majority of what the Bible has to say about this concept of rest. And part of the problem is we can't even agree what the seventh-day Sabbath means. It's not just biblical rest that we don't understand. We get so caught up in debates about what the seventh-day Sabbath is. There's a contingency within the church today that believes that we should be going back to the Old Testament concept, which is a Friday night to Saturday night, sundown to sundown. The idea of taking one day a week during those parameters where we don't do any work like we normally do the other six days of the week. In recent history, though, the majority view within evangelicalism would be a Sunday observance of the Sabbath. Uh, Those people would be going back to the New Testament. And even though it doesn't say that Sunday is the new Sabbath, they do see people starting to gather on Sunday, the Lord's Day as it's called. And so the theology developed and the terminology became common practice to call Sunday the New Covenant Sabbath. But then way back in the 1500s, you've got this guy named Martin Luther. Maybe you've heard of him. He came up with the idea that, you know, it's not really practical for everybody to take Sunday off because some people have to work. And so he introduced this idea that you could move it to a different day of the week. That eventually morphed into some combination of taking bits and pieces of different days throughout the week. And all of a sudden, what we have is four or five different concepts of what the Sabbath might mean in regards to taking time off of work. And unfortunately, where that's led us is to the place where the majority view now is that people don't even really have an opinion. (laughs) They've completely abandoned the idea of Sabbath keeping. But there's one passage in the New Testament, one I focus heavily on in my book, Rethinking Rest, that I think is really the most authoritative scripture on the topic of biblical rest. And I say that for a couple reasons. We can go back into the Old Testament to get the backstory. I think that's important. I do that in the first two chapters of the book almost entirely. It's important to know the backstory. We can also go into the Gospels and see how it is that Jesus was interacting with this concept of Sabbath while he was alive. And a lot of people do that. They go, because Jesus talked a lot about the Sabbath, what to do on the Sabbath. He was arguing with Pharisees and religious leaders about what's okay to do on the Sabbath, what's not. He had some pretty spectacular sayings about Sabbath, too, that would get quoted all the time. Like, he's Lord of the concept. And we don't even know what that means. So one day a week he's Lord? I don't think that's what he was talking about. And the reason I tend to go to the Hebrews passage is because although we don't know who wrote Hebrews, we do know that Hebrews was written after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The author of Hebrews spends the better part of two chapters, three and four in his book, discussing this idea of biblical rest.
So while we can go back in the Old Testament and get the history, and we should certainly listen to what Jesus had to say about it and how he acted regarding the topic, I like to spend the majority of my time kind of diving into this Hebrews passage because Hebrews is deeply theological. And one of the main statements that comes out of this Hebrews discussion is that God is not done with this topic. Hebrews specifically says that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, notice what the author doesn't say. He doesn't say there remains a Sabbath day for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath 24-hour period of time for the people of God. He doesn't go about it in that direction at all. He says there remains a Sabbath rest. And you might just be shaking your head right now thinking, oh, you're just splitting hairs. But I don't think so, because what the author of Hebrews does in his argument is takes us back into the Old Testament to prove his point. And you would think, given the hyper-focused attention that we give the fourth commandment in modern evangelicalism, you would think that it would be highly important for the author of Hebrews to spend at least some amount of time going back into Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5 and going over the concept where that idea was established as a rule to be followed. You would think that would be where he would take you. But surprisingly, he takes you everywhere but there. (laughs) In the argument about biblical rest, that from a New Testament perspective, God has not abandoned this topic, the author of Hebrews takes us back to Genesis chapter 1, which is highly informative because that's where God rested on the seventh day. We're going to take a look at that and discuss it in a little more detail in future episodes. He also, though, takes you back to Psalm 95, which is not a place that you would normally land if you were talking about where should we go to get our best instruction about how to observe Sabbath. That's not where we would go. And in some of his concluding statements here in Hebrews 4, verses 8 and 9, let me just read it to you. Author of Hebrews says, For if Joshua had given them rest— He would not have spoken of another day after that. So, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's interesting because the argument that Hebrews gives us takes us back to Genesis, but then it also takes us back to Joshua. If Joshua had actually given them the rest that was available there in the Old Testament, then David, through a Psalm 95 and actually God speaking through David, would not have mentioned something else, a a further fulfillment of that idea so many years later in David's time. So by bringing up Joshua, what the author of Hebrews is doing, and we don't recognize this because we don't understand our Old Testament, but the author of Hebrews did. And the author of Hebrews says if Joshua, and by mentioning Joshua, what he's doing is he is sidestepping somebody. I don't know if you noticed But the author of Hebrews doesn't go back to any part of the Mosaic law in Exodus 20 or in Deuteronomy 5. The author of Hebrews doesn't go back to the Mosaic law at all. The author of Hebrews doesn't even mention Moses in his argument. He's mentioning Joshua, who took over after Moses died and led the people into the Promised Land. By the way, a land 
that's described often as a land of rest. Joshua led the people into the promised land, if that had been the end all, God, speaking through David in Psalm 95, would not have mentioned another day after the conquest of the Holy Land. So the argument goes, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God because moving into the promised land was not it. There's something else. And I would argue that by not mentioning the fourth commandment, the author has taken that off the table as well. So there's something else. There's something that we're missing. There's something that most of the Sabbath observance books out on the market today are not recognizing. And it's because we've got this hyper-focus on the fourth commandment. Let me just give you a couple more examples out of AJ's book, Subversive Sabbath. Pretty early on in the introduction, Swoboda questions whether he's even qualified to write a book about Sabbath. He says, I question whether I'm the right person to write a book on Sabbath. I'm not a Jew. I'm a Christian, a Gentile one at that. The truth remains that I'm writing about something far outside my scope of scholarship. Others, particularly Jews and Christians in communities that have been keeping a Sabbath for centuries, know far more about the Sabbath than I. So, breaking away from Swoboda's work there, this is something that's very common that you'll see in many of the Sabbath books that are written today. They rely heavily on the Jewish understanding of Sabbath keeping, which, if you're focusing on the fourth commandment, that makes total sense. But also, let's remind ourselves the Jewish religion has not accepted Jesus as a Messiah figure. And so, from a Jewish perspective, they wouldn't really care what Jesus ever had to say about the topic, and they also wouldn't care about what any other books, like Hebrews, would have to say on the topic either. So there's that. There's that fascination of going back and learning from the Jewish faith how it is that we're supposed to be keeping the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. And again, if that's the end all, if that's the crown jewel of what rest is, biblically speaking, that might be actually a, a decent idea. But the author of Hebrews doesn't take us there. And so I just kind of wonder why everybody else thinks that's where a lot of the wisdom on Sabbath keeping is actually found. The other thing that you'll see in many of the books that are out today is the way that rest is defined. And when I get a chance to address people, I usually just ask the question, what do you think is the opposite of rest? And depending on how you answer that question, it's going to really dictate how it is that you are approaching the topic. Because we've been taught to think that the opposite of rest is work. And I'm not sure that's entirely correct. We've also been taught to think that being busy is the opposite of rest that we're so busy in the modern world that we've got so many distractions away from the God who wants us to rest that we need to, let's say, put our phones away for one day a week or we need to 
get out into nature. We need to do something dramatically different because we're missing the boat all the other six days of the week. And we'll get into this in subsequent episodes, but I'm just going to suggest to you to start thinking about the opposite of rest, not as work, but as restlessness. And I want you to start thinking about restlessness in a sense of a soul condition. Uh, one of the things that Jesus does say about this topic is in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest one day a week. No, he doesn't say that. He just says rest. He follows that statement with, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So just to set the framework, when Jesus actually does talk about his offer of rest, he's not talking about physical rest at all. He defines it by finding rest not for our physical bodies, but for our souls. And interestingly enough, and this is what we'll start with in the next episode, his offer of rest is directly tied to the taking up of a yoke. And because of the day and age in which we live, we really understand nothing about how yokes are used. And the problem is, to understand Jesus's offer of rest, we have to understand yokes much better than we do. Let me finish with a couple more paragraphs out of Swoboda's work. He says this, humans were made to rest, literally. When God created the world, he entrusted Adam and Eve with a wondrous world of potential where they could explore, discover, play, eat, and enjoy. A new world spanned brilliantly before them. A cadence can be immediately discerned to that creation story. Let there be light. Let there be a vault. Let the water. Let the land. Let there be lights. Let us make. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. When God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of the creating that he had done, there is a rhythm to the week. God finished six days of work by resting for one. Swoboda continues, God's rhythm of work and rest soon became the framework for human work and rest. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And then he quotes Exodus 20, verses 9 and 10. There's a couple things I'd like to point out just as we close today. Uh, challenge uh, some of the things he said and the understanding, and I'll let you go back into the text yourself and just examine this. But he does a little sleight of hand. And again, I think he comes by it honestly, because this is the way everybody talks about the topic. But he says this, By the seventh day, God had finished the work which he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. That's what AJ says. And he gets that idea that God rested from all his work because he's logically going to the fourth commandment. 
And it's in the fourth commandment where it says, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. So he's taking the instructions given to the Israelites in the fourth of the Ten Commandments, where they are not to do any work. And he's back reading that into the seventh day of creation, where he says, on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. But as we close, I'd like to just take you back to that seventh day. You can turn back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 1 is the first six days, and then chapter 2, verse 1, begins the seventh day. Let me just read it for you. Chapter 2, verse 1, Genesis. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Now, it does say that he completed all the work which he had done, but the way the author of the Genesis creation account, and specifically the seventh day, describes God's ceasing, he describes it this way, that God completed his work which he had done. What work is that talking about? It's talking about the work in the first six days. The work of the first six days is completed. That is organizing work. That is giving structure and function to the chaos. At the end of six days, that work is done, and God ceases. That's what Shabbat means in the Hebrew. It's a ceasing. It's a stopping. And we have assumed, because of the fourth commandment, we have assumed that that means ceasing all work. But that's not the way the seventh day of creation states it. It only states that God stopped, he ceased, all the work which he had done. In other words, the type of work that is done in the first six days was complete. And we know that because we go back into the day six, and what had been called good and good and good throughout the whole first six days ends up being called very good. And that's just ancient speak for everything's in its place and doing its thing. That work of giving function and order to the cosmos, that work is complete. And God has ceased all of that work which he had done. But what it doesn't say is that God stopped all work. And we've assumed, based on our definition of rest, that that's what God was doing. He took one 24-hour period of time and didn't do anything. But that's not what the text says. And we'll get into that next time here on the Rethinking Scripture podcast. <laughs>